following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Friends, welcome back to Larger for Life. Uh, I'm your host, Nick Bullock, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Sean Morris of Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Greetings and salutations, citizens. Derek Bright of Aliceville, Alabama. Cheers. Matt Adams of Dillon, South Carolina. Merry Christmas. And Stephen Spacklemaster of Jacksonville, Florida. What is this Christmas of which you speak? Advent. <laughs> well, it is the season, so why not talk about man in the estate of sin and misery? Uh, today, we're going to take up question 30 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, which asked, does God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? And it answers, God doth not leave all men to perish in the estate of sin and misery, into which they fell by the breach of the first covenant, commonly called the covenant of works. But of his mere love and mercy delivereth his elect out of it, and bringeth them into an estate of salvation, by the second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. And I want to toss this over to our friends, Spackle Master. Get us started, brother. I still don't know the genesis of that nickname. I've been called a lot of things, but you jokers are a novel and innovative bunch. Well, Spin, frankly, I'm surprised the larger catechism didn't have a you know an insert there of what is the estate of sin and misery. It's hanging out with you people. <laughs> Feelings mutual, friend. So this question is basically highlighting for us uh, the grace and the mercy and the love of God in not treating us as our sins deserve and not treating us as the sins of our first father deserved because Adam, when he entered into the covenant of works, it was as a public person, as a federal head, we all sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. And we like to use this colloquialism sometimes, you made your bed, you lie in it. And man, because he broke that covenant of works, he did not uh, stay within the bounds that were set for him by that positive command of God, which is do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We all sinned in him, fell in him. And so um, God would have been right to consign us all to judgment and hell eternally, but that's not what he did. And so this is after going through that valley of the shadow of death that is our sinful condition and all the actual transgressions that proceed from it, we get this glimmer of hope and the good news of the gospel that God did not leave us in the bed we made for ourselves, but he's going to send a redeemer to break us out of that first covenant and bring us into this second covenant. Now, I want to kind of tee this up. Is it fair to say, fellas, that until we come to Jesus Christ in faith, that everyone is operating under a covenant of works. What do y'all think? Yes. Thank you for that riveting answer, Derek. On behalf of the Larger for Life guys, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Thanks for joining uh, us today. Yeah, you, you, it, I think that's fair because you're, you only relate to God 
one of two ways via covenant, right? And, and both ways are covenant, but um, one is you either are going to come to God in the eschaton, clothed in the righteousness of Christ with grace, coming to him and saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, they could come to thee for dress, right? And and he's going to accept you based on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is given to you by virtue of your union with Christ and the covenant of grace, or, or you're going to go before the Lord and stand before and say, I did the best I could. This is my good work. These are my good works. And these are, um, so you're, you're going to go, um, you, you relate to God one of two ways. And it's important to know that because on a pastoral level, I actually think this is one of the biggest, um, this is one of the uh, <clears throat> biggest issues that many people have is a misunderstanding of the fact that we, if you're a believer, we do live under a covenant of grace that was made with Christ first and our, and as the next question we'll get to next episode. But um, I think it's a huge pastoral issue because so many people don't live like they live uh, under a covenant of grace, but they still live and treat God as if they live under a covenant of works. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been explained this way. My covenant theology professor, Derek Thomas would say this, he would say, you know, the tagline for the covenant of works is um, do this and live. And uh, the tagline for the covenant of grace is live and do this. And I think most people operate. Um, well, I would say most people who struggle perhaps with their salvation operate under a do this and live principle. And so anyways, I just wanted to add that pastoral note, but yes, that's the long way of saying yes. No. And if our, our listeners aren't familiar with that language, covenant of works. Um, let, you know, let's just take a moment to explain what we are meaning here, because yeah. you know, as we have the creation narrative before us and in Genesis one and uh, two, we have you know creation mandates being given uh, to Adam and Eve. Uh, you know, they are to have dominion over the world. They are to work it. They are to rule over it. They are to procreate, uh, multiply, uh, you know, the people of the earth. Um, they are to rest uh, on the Sabbath day and they are not to eat of the tr- of the tree. Right. Um, that we've talked about in previous episodes. And so uh, as they disobeyed, uh, as they under the temptation of the evil one in the form of a serpent, uh, you know, as they disobeyed God's command they have now ushered sin into the world, uh, which carries about consequences. And ultimately that consequence is death. You know, the wages of sin is death, Paul writes uh, in his letter to the Romans. And so we have this covenant of works being established, um, obey and live, do this and live as, as Spin was speaking to. Uh, but because of the fall, uh, of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Now we have to look outside of ourselves uh, for uh, everlasting life, for for an eternal state of blessedness, and that's where the covenant of grace comes in. Uh, where in Genesis three, there's that first declaration of the gospel that there will be one who who will be sent through the seed of the woman who will make all things right again. 
uh, and crush the head of the serpent. And, and so, um, you know what? Now that I've thought about that, that was Derek that said, uh, you know, do this and live, not spin. I shouldn't give him any credit, especially when it's not due to him. But anyway. That's um, a great point. That's a great point. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I apologize to our listeners. Um, but, you know, we have to establish what we understand with these covenant of works, covenant of grace. Um, the covenant of works uh, is very much this obedience leads to blessedness. Grace is uh, our blessed state of salvation that Christ freely gives to us out of his mercy and love for his people, then leads us into a life of obedience. And so that is uh, especially uh, helpful for us to remember as we have this conversation. Uh, that is especially helpful. And I think it might be also useful here uh, to talk about there has been different nomenclature, uh, perhaps, uh, regarding this covenant of works. It's interesting, even the the catechism itself seems to acknowledge it here. Um, God doth not leave all men to perish in the estate of sin and misery into which they fell by the breach of the first covenant, commonly called uh, the covenant of works. But sometimes folks will call this uh, a covenant of life. Sometimes they'll just call it generically the first covenant. Um, you know, and there, it might just be a matter of, of uh, arguing and nitpicking about semantics. But I but it's at least worth acknowledging that sometimes readers, in the, particularly in the older literature, systematic theologies, different commentaries, what have you, may come across different labels in reference to this first covenant. Um, even Voss here in his commentary says, uh, what two names are given to the first covenant that God made with mankind? A, covenant of life. B, the covenant of works. And then why, why can that same covenant be called both a covenant of life and a covenant of works? And he says, because the first covenant was an arrangement made by God on the basis of which mankind could gain eternal life by works of obedience to God. So just something to be aware of. I think perhaps the most notable uh, theologian, at least in our circles, was John Murray. I believe John Murray did not prefer the term uh, covenant of works, Professor Murray, but he preferred the covenant of life nomenclature. So uh, wherever one lands on that, uh, just be aware that difference of labels in reference to that same first covenant. And with this covenant of works, we, I think we say that um, with the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, when we say that um, we've been freed from the law, it's, it's parallel to saying that we've been freed from the law as a covenant of works. We've not been freed from obedience to the law because we go, oh God, you know, at just a creational level, uh, obedience to his commands. We need to adhere to the design, um, the reason that we were made, and that's to glorify him and enjoy him uh, forever. But we're freed from the law as the means whereby we are, whereby we're made right with God. Uh, it can't come through the law. And uh, that is a miserable um, way to live your life, is to feel that your relationship to God is predicated upon what you do or don't do. Uh, but this covenant of grace uh, is, I mean, it's all in the context of love and, and God's loving us first. Uh, so when we see the Ten Commandments, even as they're given to Israel in Exodus chapter 20, before we get to the do's, that's the imperatives of the Ten Commandments, uh, we get the what has been done. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And there's sort of this implied therefore, right? There is the therefore, now have no other gods before me. And so the covenant of grace is not contrary to righteousness. The covenant of grace is great in that Christ has fulfilled the righteousness demanded by the covenant of works that we could not provide. And so now through union with Jesus Christ and having received his righteousness as that gift by grace through faith, we can now out of gratitude and thanksgiving live in obedience to his commands. One of my church members had this great illustration. Living under the covenant of works is like being an adopted child, but being told by the adopting parents, uh, don't unpack your bags. You know, you could be out of here any day now. But being received into this, this covenant of grace that's all in that context of love, God tells us, unpack your bags. Uh, you're, you're my adopted child. You are accepted, you know, full and free through Jesus Christ. You're brought into the family. And this covenant of grace is, is not going to break you or crush you like the covenant of works would. But it is that place where you can live and have peace and security like you couldn't anywhere else. And this is not to say, by the way, that works are irrelevant um, in while living under a covenant of grace. We don't want to go that far because that right. would be antinomianism. And this, you know, this discussion could go, you know, very detailed and very nuanced. Um, and I don't know that we want to go too deep into that. But this is not to say, you know, even with those taglines I gave, which I think originally are from the mayor of modern divinity. um, but um, even with that, those aren't, you know, perfect. They're just generic or general, you know, ways of putting it. Um, but we don't want to say that because we live under a covenant of grace, that sanctification, good works and those things don't matter. And the catechism eventually gets to those things. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't we want to make sure we place them in the right categories. And this the the framework of covenant helps us to do that. Well, Derek, it's worth teasing out, if you don't mind, because I know we got some young listeners, some some kids. We have some folks who are really, really new to Reformed theology. What's an antinomian? What do we mean by that when we throw that antinomian label around? Yeah, so anti, meaning against, namos, meaning law, so against the law, literally uh, against God's law, more specifically. And it's the view that, and again, I'm going to speak generically here, but sure. it's the view that... Um, because you're saved by grace, that good works, effort, sanctification, and those things are really irrelevant. Um, God really, and I, this may be controversial, but it's also the view that would say, well, God only see, when he looks at you, he only sees Christ. He doesn't actually see your sin. We've, we've heard that popularized before. He only sees you, doesn't see your sin, flattens out our relationship with God, and uh, really doesn't have a proper place for good works, effort, sanctification, the law, things like that. Um, so it's almost as if saying the law really doesn't have any relevance for the Christian life other than pointing you to Christ. And that would be inaccurate according to the New Testament, but also if you look at the history of the Westminster Assembly, you look at the history of the Puritan era, uh, this was a view that was, um, they were trying to combat against that view. 
there's really good resources out there on this. Um, and so antinomianism literally anti God's law. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's helpful because that's a term that gets thrown around sometimes and folks may not be uh, familiar with it. And so it's, it's good just to parse that out and say we would repudiate and reject uh, an antinomian view of the Christian life and certainly classic Reformed theology and certainly uh, the Westminster Divines would as well. One of the things that I, I just can't help but pick up is in the structure of the Catechism, we've come to question 30 on the back of so many questions about sin itself. Uh, the, the misery of sin, the punishments of sin, uh, what sin is, all of those sorts of things. And it, it makes me think on Ephesians chapter 2, where you have verses 1 through 3 that describe uh, all of the character and contortions of the fallen heart of man. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, there is the intervening grace of God. And we read, uh, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The divines almost could have taken that single portion of verse 4 and made that the answer to question 30. Does God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? The answer, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. The answer is a simple, resounding no. And for our listeners, uh, that ought to strike you. It ought to cause you to just simply take pause and hear the answer of the intervening grace, the grace of God that reaches into your mess and pours out his mercy for the sake of your salvation. Yeah, we've talked a lot about the covenants and the covenant structure, the, the fall of man and the transgression of the first covenant where man related on the grounds of his own obedience. And what we're going to see at the very close of 30 is going to be this introduction more formally in the Catechism of the Covenant of Grace, which we've already mentioned, where we're not accountable to God on the grounds of our obedience, but rather on the grounds of the obedience of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Those are wonderful truths. Uh, but to take the whole thing as a package, to simply have this uh, idea of the rich mercy of God and the love of God being his motive for not leaving all men to perish in an estate of sin and misery. That's got to be jaw-dropping for you, Christian. It's got to be something that gives you comfort, gives you assurance because of who he is in spite of who we are. Nick, you come up with a, you know, you're making a really good point. And it's one that, you know, I know we're it's seeming, you know, we're we're seeming like we're beating a hammer here the past number of episodes, but the the catechisms want you to feel the gravity of the sin that you've committed. You know, I've been teaching through the the Sermon on the Mount. We just recently got through the Beatitudes uh, at our Wednesday night prayer meeting, and that first Beatitude, right, uh, being poor in spirit, it's realizing that you're guilty, vile, and helpless apart from Christ, and so it. It wants to bring you to its lowest lows, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, so that the spirit and the word might fill you up with the gospel. So empty yourself of all pride, humbly come to the throne of grace, cling to the mercies of the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ and be filled up by his spirit. Um, and, and so the, the catechism wants you to be emptied 
uh, of your prod. It wants you to to see the gravity, the consequences of sin. Even again, in in this question, one of the proof texts is Second Thessalonians one nine, talking about those who you know remain in their sins and trespasses, those who remain in their depravity, uh, in the the sinful estate in which they inherited from their father Adam. It's those who quote, shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Uh, I mean, you, the, the, the most severe aspect of hell is summarized by the Apostle Paul in his second letter to the church at Thessalonica. It's an everlasting destruction. You think, oh, well, that's the that's the worst of it, right? It's everlasting. No, it's that you are away from the presence of the Lord and you cannot experience his glory. But the but the but the positive aspects of, of this catechism question is that it flips the despair of the covenant of works onto the good news of the gospel, as we can say, because it's near the Christmas season, that good news of great joy for all people. Uh, because here it is that through the mercy of the Father, through the life and the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, then for his elect, notice it's not all of mankind as the first Noel says it, it's for the elect, for God, for God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think that's a great transition to start thinking about uh, the, the mercy of God, the, the love of God, uh, bringing us into an estate of salvation by this second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. Guys, what do y'all have uh, for our listeners as we transition from the covenant of works to the covenant of grace? Yeah, before we leave it entirely, just a quick note. I, people have a default works righteousness, don't they? Because that covenant of works is so indelibly imprinted upon our souls. I mean, it's a pastoral point worth making that when, you, when you're engaging with the average non-Christian believer and trying to help persuade them to see their need— um, you know, it, so many at least so many of the conversations I have, they always default to. But I'm a good person. I do these things. I I, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. I try to do good things for other people. I I give to charity. I help out because there's that intrinsic. It's indelibly imprinted upon our souls. It's at the DNA level that I can do these good things to merit peace and some and paradise and some kind of eternal reward and i mean and that's and that's worth remi- the covenant of works is still in play if it weren't people wouldn't still be dying right but you're not going to get to eternal life by it not going to it's not going to happen i mean that's that's the one of the key points that the apostle paul is making in galatians isn't it I and mean, that's why uh, galatians 3 is one of the the major proof texts uh, you utilized here by uh, the catechism authors uh, oh foolish galatians paul opens chapter 3 Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Uh, down at uh, verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And then down at verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. 
for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so even though we have this covenant of works default mentality, this this inherent, if you will, native Pelagianism about our about our sensibilities, the scripture is very clear here that you ain't gonna get in by doing it. No. But thanks be to God in his gracious mercy, there is the second covenant by which sinners may be made righteous before God in and through Jesus Christ. And that's the second half of the catechism question that we want to get to now in the second half of our episode this morning. You know, to kind of riff off what Sean just said, when we enter into this second portion, we encounter the phrase, but of his mere love and mercy, but of his mere love and mercy. God delivers his elect out of the estate of misery and sin. Um, The language of mere here, uh, we're we're having the divines communicate to us a specific distinctive that God's electing grace, his delivering grace, hasn't got ground in your obedience, Christian. Uh, That's not at all uh, how the Lord intends. It's not a a covenant of works to begin with, we fell from it, then it is another covenant of works for us to pick ourselves from the fall. Uh, not at all. It's it's merely or only or singly, simply, the love and mercy of God. Ephesians 2, verse 4. And it makes me think of a quote that I read some years ago from Michael Bloomberg, uh, mayor of New York. And uh, let me share it with you uh, a little bit. He says, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. And what's back of that phrase is his lobbying for a lot of uh, gun control laws in the city of New York. Now, no matter where you land on the question of gun control and government involvement, in that conversation, you should simply hear a man saying, if I do social good, I earn what? The benefits of God indifferent of the person of God. Hmm. And this really goes back to what Sean is saying. All of us have in our hearts an implicit covenant of works. In fact, I think it's the great lie of the sinner. It goes all the way back to Satan. If you do this, you'll be like God, right? Not that you'll have God or fellowship with God. You'll be like him. You'll enjoy all of his felicities without a concern for his volition or fellowship. And that's a massive distinction. It's a horrible destruction of the human soul uh, because it can imagine those things apart from the eternal Lord of glory. Uh, But what is it in the heart of man uh, that would simply say this sort of thing? It is, I want the glory. I want the crown, I want the throne indifferent of my God, and I can do it for myself. And what the divines, echoing Ephesians chapter 2, and really the whole testimony of the Bible are saying is, no, no, if you'll have any peace, if you'll have any entrance into the blessedness and the heavenlies, all you are going to be there by is the mere love and mercy of the Lord of heaven. Nothing else. Nothing more is necessary, nothing less is sufficient than the blood of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. Wow, I mean, that's that's an absolute, absolutely bone-chilling quote that you quoted there from, from Michael Bloomberg, and if he truly believes it, that's absolutely horrifying. Wow. You know, 
thinking about what Nick just so helpfully explained, um, it really makes you realize that the prosperity gospel is a gospel of the covenant of works, isn't mm, it? Mm-hmm. Because you're getting all of the blessing without the one who bestows that you're given, you want the gifts above the giver and mm-hmm. it's an, um, it's you've, you've earned those gifts, right? You should be rich because you have tithed and done all the things that you need to do. And so it's very much a basis of covenant works, but let me push this even deeper down. I I say this sometimes to people, here's, here's a good test to see if you believe your own prosperity gospel or whether or not you believe, uh, or you're, you're living under a covenant of works. And, And here's what I say to people. Um, when tragedy comes, when something bad happens, do you say this should not have happened because I was good? God should not have done this because I was good. Mm. If that's your response, you are relating to God in a covenant of works because otherwise you would see whatever was taken from you or whatever happened it merely as gifts from the Lord and the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But instead you feel like because you have enough good works that you have earned the right for God not to bring tragedy upon you. You know, one thing we should keep uh, as a distinction before our, our listeners is, is the reality of the righteousness of both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And it's an important thing for us to have that we don't place these two things in utter opposition of one another because the gracious aspect of the covenant of grace is the federal head. It's the one who's the substitute, the one who is accountable, and then who, who from whom we receive all of his obedience and all of the benefits of his righteousness but his righteousness is still enumerated on the covenant of works. He keeps all of the covenant of works perfectly, which is the issue that we have as sinners confronting the covenant of works, that we can't keep it perfectly. The problem that we have with the covenant of works is actually not the covenant in its letter. It's rather our hearts, which are incapable of keeping the covenant. That's the issue. It's us. It's not God's word. It's not his uh, wonderfully ordained relationship between us and him. Rather, it's our incapacity because of the fall and sin and the soul's own death. And so we we really have to be ultimately very careful uh, with the way we talk about this sort of thing, because the, the other portion of it is, is we can simply think, well, the demands of the covenant of works, those are really not for me. Those are Old Testament things. And we get back to the question of antinomianism, and we can conscribe ourselves to the thought of the complete newness of the covenant of grace, that all those old covenant things are passing away, but Jesus very uh, forthrightly confronts it. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law, using the law as a synonym uh, for the covenant of works or the accountability to the covenant of works, but rather to keep it or fulfill it. That's the testimony of Jesus. And so you can see the coherence there that Jesus' cross-bearing is actually a keeping of the covenant of works, and then the outpouring of the benefit of the covenant of works 
upon us and all of its benefit in Jesus is itself the gracious thing. That's what makes us call the covenant of grace uh, in that terminology. So j- just want to be very careful. Now, what, what Derek is getting at is, is in our hearts, we want to relate to God on the basis of works, and we're ultimately going to damn ourselves because of our inability and the, the wickedness of our flesh um, and, and of our sinful selves. So uh, it's a good distinction, but we really do need to keep those two things clearly in view if we're going to have a right view of the, the covenant of works, the law of God, and then a right view of, of the covenant of grace and the Christian's life before the face of God. The, the covenant of grace is great because grace is not just uh, the, the standard, right, or the means whereby we, uh, our salvation is begun, but grace is in the way and grace is the end, right? So our, our salvation is begun by grace alone, and it's also maintained by grace alone, uh, because while the law and the practical usefulness thereof is not thrown out of the window uh, within the covenant of grace, we're going to get to this about the three uses of the law. It convicts, it restrains, and it instructs. And, and those are all three uses that believers on this side of the cross are expected to avail themselves of. But the good news is that it's not okay, salvation begins by grace, but then it's being completed by works. I love the fact that Paul, or that uh, Sean, see, Sean is so wise, I I called him Paul. Uh, Sean is quoting Paul and saying, you you foolish Galatians, you know, who's bewitched you? Because grace was not something that you could talk about purely in the past tense. Grace is in the present tense. It's in the future tense. It's, it's, It's the totality. Of, of the covenant of grace. And so um, that I think for the listeners, you, you've got to maintain that one because you'll hear words thrown out about uh, faithfulness and we are called to be faithful, certainly, but people, when they sort of sneak that language of, you know, uh, faithfulness into um, the language of the covenant of grace that we're justified by grace through through faithfulness, right? That is an attempt to sort of create this I'm going to be justified and made right with God and remain right with God partially by my obedience to the law and partially through uh, grace and faith. No, it's it's one or the other. You, you can't sort of pick and choose or 75, 25 percent, uh, you know, works to grace. It's either entirely by law or a covenant of works that you're made right with God, which you can't be, or it's entirely by grace. And I don't know about you guys, but that's why I think as preachers, why why I as a preacher am motivated to preach the gospel, not just to the unconverted, but to my church members, mm-hmm. because I think it is the besetting sin of us all that we slip into that latent works righteousness, or we sort of, we see our obedience, which is all spirit wrought and praise God it is, but then we sort of uh, lay a little bit of credit on ourselves and say, well, those were my works and I did perform those and start to feel pretty good about ourselves and start to forget uh, that grace undergirds it all. Well, friends, we've had a good discussion this morning. We appreciate you joining us as we've thought through Westminster Larger Catechism question and answer number 30, thinking about the distinction between that covenant of works or sometimes called covenant of life and now the fact that God and his glorious 
yet mere love and mercy delivers his elect out of it and bringeth them into a state of salvation by that second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. We trust that this conversation has been encouraging and edifying and useful to you, and we look forward to having you join us again next time when we soldier on into Larger Catechism question number 31 and perhaps even more. So join us again next time here on Larger for Life. Cheers, and God bless. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash larger for life. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life.